Hello everyone, my name is Adam, and welcome into this week's trip down the homeward path. Before we get into things, I've got a few questions. Are you a fan of Magic the Gathering? Presumably so, since you're here listening to a podcast about it, but, you know, what do I know? But is there something else in your life that takes precedence? Keeps you away from your magical aspirations? A job, a career, partner, spouse, children, any and all of the above. Listen, I'm right there with you. I have a wonderful wife, three children, full-time job, and a lot of extracurricular commitments that make it really difficult to devote the amount of time, finance, and energy that high-level competitive magic normally takes. But in spite of that, are you, like me, relentlessly seeking improvement every time you get a chance to play? If that sounds like something you're interested in, then I suggest you hop in and buckle up. Now let's go for a ride. But it's a good time to remind you that we are brought to you by the following sponsors. PureMTGO.com is one of the largest depositories of magic content on the web. They've got a little bit of something for absolutely everyone. And I do mean everyone. So head over there, check out their collection of stuff. While you're at it, I understand that the arena grind can feel like a bit of a slog, especially if, like me, you're traditionally at least a free-to-play player. But thanks to our sponsor at Grey Viking Games, you don't have to wander the wilderness in search of your glory on your own. You can head over there and find access to pre-release codes, single-pack codes, cosmetics, promo packs, uh, card sleeves, any and all of the above. So go and find your glory at GreyVikingGames.com. And if you want to support this show in a much more direct fashion, don't forget to head over to Patreon.com slash HomewardPathMTG. This show is always going to be free, but if you like what we're doing enough to help us keep doing it, go over become a patron, and take advantage of your rewards. And if you've got questions, comments, or concerns about the show, or you just want to talk, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at HomewardPathMTG. You can find me on Facebook. My name is Adam Spain, like the country. Yes, I got picked on about that for most of my life. And you can join the conversation in the Facebook group, The Homeward Pathfinders. So head over, check all that stuff out while you continue to listen on the Homeward Path. So before I dive in this week, I would like to make a formal apology for the last few weeks of not content that I've put out. (laughs) We've been through a pretty rough patch here at home. Uh... My daughter was recovering from surgery that she'd had at the beginning or the end of January. My wife had surgery at in the middle of February. And then I'm talking, we, we picked her up from surgery for recovery. 
and the ice storm hit. Like the ice storm hit Thursday morning. I went to work Friday. Picked her up on the way home. And then we got all that snow. You know, the south got all the snow and ice dumped on it. And I ended up missing a week of work. So coupling surgical recoveries for two of my family with the fact that I was stuck at home. My head was just not altogether here. I could not in good conscience call what I was trying to crank out an episode. I, I wasn't in the right headspace. I did not feel confident in the content that I was going to try to put out. And I have just not felt like myself. So for that, I would like to formally apologize to anyone who has grown accustomed to my what has become a normal schedule for me. Uh, I will endeavor to do better. We are making some adjustments to the, to the writing process and the recording schedule so as to speed things up a little bit in the event that something like this happens again. So that maybe, just maybe, it won't throw everything out of whack. I am a creature of habit. Nothing keeps me happier than being in a routine. And I was not able to be in my routine the last few weeks. So, the only person to blame is me. I'm not blaming anybody else. It's no one's fault but mine. But I wanted to get that out there before I dove into the rest of the episode. So our first segment every week, or every episode at least, given the way the last few weeks have gone, is Budget Spotlight. Now Budget Spotlight is typically where I'm highlighting some kind of theme. The original method for Budget Spotlight was a, an uncommon, a rare, and a mythic, and then a commander focus card. But given that we've been doing the, the color sets, I've been kind of playing around with that formula and bouncing all over the place. and. This week is no exception, because this week is Esper week. Not to be confused with my daughter Esther, but Esper. Also known as that shard, nobody plays until everybody plays it. It's really weird. But in the, in the spirit of Esper week, I wanted to look at it from the, through the lens of not the individual colors that make up the shard, but the, the three guilds that make up the shard if that makes sense. So for starters, we have Hostage Taker. Hostage Taker is a 2-3 human pirate. Costs 2, a blue and a black. When Hostage Taker enters the battlefield, exile target artifact or creature an opponent controls as long as Hostage Taker remains on the battlefield. While that card remains in exile, you can cast that card and spend mana as though it were any type in order to do so. So, let's take a look at this card. First of all, the price line on it is somewhere around the $6 mark, which is not terrible. You can do a lot worse than $6. But it's a clean answer to with upside, mind you against a lot of permanents in Historic and Pioneer. You look at the format as a whole. Historic and Pioneer are largely driven 
by powerful engine decks, especially thanks to the banning of cards like Uro and um, uh, Balustrade Spy and Undercity Informer, the, the Oops All Spells enablers. Like, these cards are a lot... Uh, those cards enabled strategies that made a card like Hostage Taker a lot less viable. But, now that they're gone, there's the possibility that mid-range and engine decks will flourish. I mean, think about it. You look at a deck like John Sacrifice. It's built around cards like Bolas' Citadel and Witches of It. Those are both artifacts. It exiles Embercleave. It exiles... Uh, God Pharaoh's gift randomly. It exiles um, the lands that Nissa animates, awkwardly enough. Like, there's a lot of things that this thing just gets off the table cleanly, efficiently, for four mana. And the upside being, you can exile their thing and then cast it. So, like, if you hold it until turn six and exile their two drop and then play it. You got very real, very tangible card advantage. It's also even stronger alongside a ramp package or a blink package. A blink package, presumably, you know, if you're looking to exile something like a Hydra Crisis, or I guess not a Stone Cold Serpent because it just doesn't, it just can't target it. But if you exile something like Hangerback Walker, something like Walking Ballista. Well, I guess Walking Ballista's banned in both formats. Sort of. It just doesn't exist in Historic. You know, if you're exiling something like a Hangerback Walker, uh, you know, anything that enters the battlefield with X plus one plus one counters. With a Hostage Taker. It's just gone. Even if they kill the Hostage Taker, their thing is dead. Because it just comes back as a zero zero and dies. So with blink effects, you can blink it in order, you know, if you eat something like that earlier in, earlier in the game, and then a more appealing target pops up later, or something you can cast pops up later, well, you can blink your hostage taker at your opponent's end step to eat the new thing, and then cast it, which is pretty sweet. But even barring that, with a ramp package, you just get to cast it and the thing you eat more frequently. You know, the more mana you have, the more probable that is as a play line. So, it's not nothing. So, all that rounds out into a package. It's a card you want for mid-rangey piles. You know, Sultai, Grixis, Esper, Ironic, I know. That are interested in the value game. And it's the kind of card you want, like, two of. So, at $6, it's not unreasonable. Next on the docket is a card that we are all sick to death of seeing in Standard, and that card is Doom Foretold. And we're going to talk a little bit more about how this works in conjunction with some of your own cards later. Uh, Doom Foretold is two, a black and a white enchantment. At the beginning of each player's upkeep, that player sacrifices a non-token, non-land permanent. If they can't, sacrifice Doom Foretold, create a 2-2 two -two, uh, white knight token with Vigilance. And your opponent discards a card. Or that player discards a card. 
It's an elegant answer to a lot of problems. Because the way it's designed, it's the kind of card you want to try to craft a game state into. Like if your opponent's uh, if your opponent's playing Great Henge, or your opponent's playing something like Godfarer's Gift, or your opponent's playing something like Teferi's Tutelage, you can get everything else off the battlefield and then make them sacrifice the thing you want gone. Once you jam the doom, like kill all their creature, all their non-token creatures, let the sagas expire, and then jam the doom for doom foretold to kill the little things, the things that matter. It's also an elegant out to your own negative effects, but we'll get into some more specifics on that later. And doom foretold having the whopping massive price tag of fifty cents. I don't, I don't have to tell you, like, even as just a speculative one-of for Commander, you can do a whole lot worse than 50 cents for a card that can impact the entire table. That's each player's upkeep. Even if it only lasts one round, it's done its job. Right? So, moving forward, our next one on the list is Sphinx's Revelation... Sphinx's Revelation is an instant, costs X, blue, blue, white. Or X, white, blue, blue. I'm not sure how it's templated. But. Draw X cards, gain X life. This is a card at the price point of $4.50 that is very elegant in its simplicity. And what I mean by that is it's a card that does a very specific thing which is give you resources life total uh, life if you follow the philosophy of fire life equals cards so presumably drawing cards and gaining life is like drawing even more cards even if it just means you last one more combat step that's one more card you get to draw during a draw step Think about it that way. It's both a bridge card and a payoff card for playing a long game. It can either get you from where you are into the late game by helping you survive and find the outs, or it's the card you use once you get to the late game, lock up the board, use Sphinx's Rev for a bunch to make it to where the top of their deck doesn't matter, and you're going to find a way to close things out. It helps turn the tide in slower matchups or in faster matchups where you really need those points of life. Even if you're even if you're more interested in playing like a tap-out control deck or a, a mid-range deck, a copy or two of Sphinx's Rev can do wonders, especially if you've got access to quick mana. You know, a, a bent cultivate deck can do a lot worse than one to two copies of Sphinx's Revelation. Especially if you're interested in playing this uh, Hydro Crisis in the first place. But in uh, slower matchups, it can help bury your opponent. Because you can bait with a couple of spells on their turn, or, you know, start a counter spell fight over something they think matters that doesn't, 
just to get them to expend resources, tap their mana, and then you untap on your turn and just Sphinx's Rev for a ton. Now you've got a handful of cards again. Now it's going to be hard for them to fight you on the axis that they want to. Now they've got to do something. You know. So again, 450, you can do worse. This is the kind of card that, again, even if it's not something you want to play in Pioneer or Modern or uh, Historic, if it ever makes its way there, it's a good commander card. And it's just, it just feels good to cast, you know? And last but not least, we have our all three colors card. And I'm cheating a little bit. But that card is Thopter Foundry. Thopter Foundry costs either a white or a black and a blue. And Thopter Foundry says it's an artifact. And it says, for one generic mana, sacrifice another non-token or sacrifice a non-token artifact. It can sacrifice itself in a pinch. If it's going to get exiled, you can eat itself. Create a 1-1 one, one blue artifact Thopter token with flying. Gain one life. So at its core, this thing is actually really like a really simple effect. Even without its running mate for modern, it provides some neat synergy with death trigger artifacts. Cards like Chromatic Star, draw a card. Cards like uh, Solemn Simulacrum, draw a card. Uh, yeah, a lot of these are just cards that draw more cards. Spine of Ishsaw, when it's when it goes to the graveyard, it goes back to your hand. You make a Thopter to block, and you get a Vindicate back to your hand. So I guess you draw a Vindicate. We're still drawing cards. Um, and it's synergy and power level with Sword of the Meat borders on Legendary. For those of you who don't know how the combo works, you sacrifice Sword of the Meat to Thopter Foundry. Sword of the Meat goes to the graveyard. You create a 1-1 one, one token, gain one life. Sword of the Meek says, while it's in the graveyard, if a 1-1 enters the battlefield under your control, Sword of the Meek comes out of your graveyard and attaches to that 1-1. So, with those two cards together, just those two cards together, for every generic mana you can produce, you can create a 1-1 Thopter and gain one life. And then the last one will be a 2-3. And this, this combo was good enough on its own to spawn multiple decks in the old extended format uh, predating Modern. Because it was, a, it was a card that just gave you a sense of inevitability. Like it was a card that fueled control decks. Because you could play a control shell around it that your opponent was worried about. Planeswalkers and board sweepers and interaction and hand disruption or counter spells and whatever. And then you always had the long game of Foundry Sword that would eventually make enough pressure to kill them. But then you had any way to turn these Thopters into extra mana while keeping the combo going. Anything. Urza. Ashnod's Altar. Even, I would argue, Phyrexian Tower. 
or not Phyrexian, Phyrexian Altar. Uh, for, you know, Urza can tap them to make a blue. Uh, Ashnod's Altar can sacrifice them to make double gener or double colorless. And Phyrexian Altar can sacrifice them to add one of any color. So with Phyrexian Altar, the end result is infinite life. With the other two, the end result is infinite mana and or infinite creatures and life. And in the case of uh, Phyrexian, or not Phyrexian, Ashnod's Altar. In the case of Ashnod's Altar, you also get infinite colorless mana because we need that too. Each sacrifice generates two more mana. So you just keep going. It's kind of silly, right? Right. So, all of this, all of this power level for the low, low price of 25 cents. I think we're good. I think we can live with that. So, moving on, we're moving on to our brew of the week. This is where we're highlighting some deck in typically either Pioneer, Historic, or Standard. Although I've been known to dip my toe into Pauper. I haven't gotten around to doing a commander one yet, but it's it's going to happen. I just haven't gotten there yet. This week's Brew of the Week is in Pioneer, and it is Esper Yorian Demonic Pact. I have it listed as Esper Pact, but realistically, the core at its core, this is a Yorian deck. We're not trying to mess around with doing anything like we're not trying to play Harmless Offering, although it's definitely something I've considered. If we're going to troll, we're going to troll hard, right? But if we want this deck to be relatively competitive, be a Yorian deck, play the best two card advantage engines to blink with Yorian that you have access to. Those two being Treacherous Blessing and Demonic Pact. Uh, for those who don't know, Demonic Pact is two and double black, and it has four modes. One of them is four damage to a target creature, and you gain four life. Uh, one of them is draw two cards. One of them, I believe, is target player discards two cards. And then the last one is you lose the game. So... <sighs> Suffice it to say, you want to get Demonic Pact off the table before that last trigger happens. Similarly, you want to get Treacherous Blessing off the table when it has got you at a precariously low life total and you really want to make sure you don't die. Well, one of the advantages to playing Yorian is the ability to reset your Demonic Pact, which gives you life, presumably, which can then buy you more time with Treacherous Blessing. Failing that, you can also just flicker your Treacherous Blessing to draw more cards and try to find a way out. Because we're Magic players, we're shameless plugs for the concept of value of bordering on an obsession with value. 
Why not do it here? Doom Foretold in this deck, and basically every other Doom Foretold deck, gives us both another way to mitigate the downsides of our own cards. Because it can eat your Demonic Pact before it blows up. Before it blows you up, rather. It can eat your Demonic Pact, keeping you from dying. That's kind of a big deal, right? It can also eat your Treacherous Blessing before it kills you. So, having an out to your own negative effects is kind of a big deal. Having multiple outs to your own negative effects is a really big deal. For customization, you can lean further into the blink theme with creatures like Deputy Detention, Elite Guard Mage, Hostage Taker, aforementioned from Budget Spotlight, and really go all the way in on trying to get as much value out of the Yorian as possible. Uh, you can build it as sort of a tap-out control deck where your card draw, enchantments, and flicker effects serve to keep your hand full of answers. And you just play a smattering of counter magic and removal around them. You can lean into sort of a constellation sub-theme where because we're already interested in playing so many enchantments in Yorian, you can play cards like Doomwake Giant, Archon of Sun's Grace, cards that care about enchantments entering the battlefield and they will generate you massive amounts of value the name of the game with Yorian decks is value and this is no exception as far as sideboard choices given that we're in the most reactive combination of colors we've got access to blues counter spells blacks efficient removal and whites unconditional but less efficient removal we've got access to all of that we've got access to hosers galore whether it's a card like Grafdigger's Cage that is just generic and doesn't really impact us in the least. We've got access to Rest in Peace and Leyline of the Void, both of which we can hardcast. It's kind of a big deal. You know, your opponent bounces Leyline or you draw Leyline late, you can still cast it and stop them. Even if it doesn't stop them from loading your graveyard, you can stop them from going any further. For less linear opponents, you've got access to cards like Aethergust, Noxious Grasp, or Devout Decree, the, the uh, M20 color hosers that are still legal. Aethergust is really good. I don't, I don't know what else to say. Like, There's so many things it hits. And basically all of those cards hit Yorian. So we got that going for us. Not Yorian. Uh, Omnath. Sorry. Brain fun. And don't sleep on the possibility if you're if you're playing against like the Rakdos Croxa deck, the if you're playing against a lot of Thoughtseize decks and burn decks. Leyline of Sanctity is a real card in your sideboard. Don't sleep on it. This is good. As for an overall outlook on the deck, like it's the kind of deck that doesn't hold up very well in a really aggressive format because one, it's 80 cards and kind of clunky. And two, it's kind of grindy and gritty and slow to develop and doesn't get off to very fast starts. It's not like quick early game powerful. It's better the more time you give it. So that would stand to reason that it's less good against really fast decks 
But as a format presumably transitions a little bit slower in the wake of bannings to some of the most unfair things, having access to a deck that can kind of long game everybody, it's not a bad place to be. You can even long game the mill decks because you have an extra 20 cards. And, you know, get access to being able to draw Yorian for three mana. So, all the way around, it just makes a lot of sense. Moving on into our main topic. And as I said early in the episode, this is Esper Week. And one of the common reoccurring themes of Esper is pretty prevalent here, so I'm going to start things off by asking the question that everybody probably already knows the answer to. What is Esper? It's the color combination. It's one of the, it's the fourth of five Shards of Alara. It's the color combination of blue, black, and white. And in the absence of Chaos Magic from Red and Nature and, you know, Life Magic from Green, their society evolved instead around a relentless drive for progress. Does that sound familiar? Kind of sounds like what we're doing. Right? Uh, it's also the home shard to a number of key figures in the history of Magic the Gathering lore. Notably, the metal Ethereum comes from Esper, as does the Planeswalker, Tezzeret, who was the de facto head of the Shard, as it were. And their society is built on innovation, constant innovation, warped around the use of the metal ethereum. Think like a much, much less benevolent version of Wakanda from the MCU. It's just, you know, everything that they're working on involves ethereum. Everything is about making good use of it, but it's not always for the betterment of their society. Sometimes it's just for the betterment of their bodies. They're, you know, everything. Ethereum. In other sets, you know, outside of the Alara block itself, Esper is very rarely a really supported theme. It's less a combination of colors that Wizards really tries to push, and more just kind of a selection of answers and ways to get to them that you fall into. I titled this episode, Never the Problem, but Usually a Solution, or Sometimes a Solution. And nothing could be more true when it comes to Esper. It is a deck you build when there are very, very clear targets you want to beat. And to demonstrate that, let's talk about some of the decks that have appeared over the years. The first one for me, in the summer of 2000, 2006, 
with solar flare. And to a lesser extent, it's eventual evolution known as solar pox. But solar flare was a deck that was designed by, I, for the life of me, I cannot remember which player popularized it, but it ended up become just spread like wildfire through Japan and the U.S. around nationals that year. And it was it was a weird deck because by all accounts it was a it was a mid-range deck even though most of the players that were watching the format called it a reanimator deck it was a mid-range deck. Or more accurately it was a tap out control deck that sometimes got under the other control decks. What you were doing is you were mashing up the, the same card draw and trump cards that the other tap-out control decks were playing. Like, all the good versions. Juicy Blue had its Remands and its uh, Kegas and Malokus and its Compulsive Researches and its Tidings to just go over the top of you, and then it had uh, access to spot removal. Well, we were playing Kegas and Malokus and Compulsive Researches and uh, Demir and Azorius Signets to uh, accelerate into them. You had access to Persecute after sideboard, sometimes main board, depending on what your metagame looked like. Uh, you had access to Coca Show the Evening Star if you wanted that. It was another card you could play. Uh, you had access to in in the uh, Mike Flores pet deck, the White Waffle Tapa, you had access to their Wrath of Gods and their Yoseis, along with Mirror and the Moaning Well, which could sacrifice Yosei, which would trigger its ability to tap down five opposing permanents through an entire turn cycle, and would gain you five life. And then you would often sideboard into the same Debtor's Knell that that deck was playing but be able to better fuel it because you were maxed out on compulsive researches. It was a deck that at its core was interested in doing the things that the tap out deck did and nothing else. It took advantage of a hole in the format because most of the control decks at the time were basically just big mid range decks. They were interested in going over the top of each other. You know, Juicy Blue was first and then there was the uh, Waffle Tapa's blue-red control deck from Pro Tour Honolulu that went over the top of that with uh, Ryusei's and targeted removal spells. And then there was the Ossip Lebedowicz Urzatron deck that did that dialed up to 11. Sometimes you just hit Kega on turn 3 and they couldn't do anything about it. Because you would play a Tron piece on turn 1, play a Signet on turn 2, play a Kega on turn three because you just natroned on turn three. And it was just really hard for your opponent to do anything you cared about with a Kega on the board on turn three. Because if it died, you just got their thing anyway. So at its core, this was a deck that took the, the approach of those decks and cut 
all the stuff that wasn't interested in doing that. It didn't play the the litany of cheap spot removal. It didn't play like the weird tempo-y bounce effects of the uh, Juicy Blue. It didn't play cards like Volcanic Hammer and Shock from Blue-Red variants. It didn't play the... Um, I guess it, no, the only removal spell in the white version was Wrath of God. So it, it definitely played the, the good removal spell from the white version. And instead, what it was interested in doing was tapping out every turn after turn three to gradually bury your opponent a little bit more. And what that allowed them to do in the control mirror, because there was very little counter magic... They could use their compulsive research on turn three to set up Zombify on turn four, and this was the play line that convinced everybody that four-drop reanimation spells were too good for standard. And that's a whole problem in and of itself. But uh, you know, in conjunction with being, you know, sometimes you would signet on two, compulsive on three. Zombify on four, another dragon on five, and just bury them, beat them to death really quick because you had two five fives in the air that they couldn't race. And if they tried to, you could sacrifice one of them to Mirren and either lock their stuff down or gain some life to offset the race. And then just play another one. You had access to Persecute against the green, like the Heartbeat combo decks. Their counter magic suite was Remand and Muddle the Mixture. Remand was the only one of those things that was going to do anything. Muddle was typically treated like a three-mana demonic tutor. So being able to just name green with Persecute on turn three against the Heartbeat deck was brutal. Because you could rip all the early harvests and Heartbeat of Springs and Weird Harvests and Sakura Tribe Elders and Rampant Growths and Kodama's Reaches out of their hand. It's just all gone. And they're stuck with a bunch of payoff cards and no way to get the mana for them. You know, you had the, the aggro decks at the time were still not largely defined by haste creatures. So you could still afford to stay up, just stay alive till turn four, develop your board, wrath on turn four, and then on your turn five, slam something they couldn't beat. And instead of trying to do that from the from the perspective of someone interested in really trying to control the game until they got to that point, they're just like, ah, whatever, you can't really kill me anyway. And then it was a deck that was hammered hard by the standard rotation because it lost a lot of its key cards. It lost Mirror in the Moaning Well. It lost Yosei the Morning Star. It lost Maloku the Clouded Mirror. It lost... Uh, any and all, like any, all the Kamigawa cards. But what it gained from the combination of Cold Snap and Time Spiral is something even more interesting, and that was the package of using Hakon, Stromgold, Scourge, and Court Hussar and other knights. And instead of using Compulsive Research to set up for Zombify, you were using Compulsive Research. You were using one engine to set up the other engine. And then you still had access to Persecute and Wrath and all these other things that everybody was already interested in.
and it eventually got knocked out of the limelight by the teachings decks because the aggro decks, the mana was kind of awkward. The format slowed down quite a bit. And in particular, or it didn't slow, it sped up quite a bit, more accurately. Dragonstorm was a deck you just couldn't beat if you only played remands as interaction. So eventually, people figured out that you could just never tap out. Because you got to play Teferi, Mage of Zelfir, and Mystical Teachings, and you could just poo-poo on people that were trying to tap out every turn. And you would win. <laughs> so moving on, the next deck I want to talk about is less of a deck and more of several iterations upon a similar archetype, and that's Esper Control. Esper Control has a storied history of showing up when it's needed and then disappearing. In Innistrad RTR Standard, Counterspells were awful because of how good Cavern of Souls was. Cavern of Souls did a really good job not letting you play Counterspells. Because you just, they didn't do anything. The combination of Cavern of Souls making life miserable on them, and the fact that a lot of the counter spells were just not very good that were available anyway, made life a little bit difficult for these control decks. So this iteration of Esper Control said, you know what, the heck with it. I'm just going to play a whole bunch of spot removal. Just all of the spot removal. All of it. No counter spells. And we're going to win by playing a bunch of counter spells and a bunch of card, or not a, a bunch of removal spells and a bunch of card draw. Those removal spells are going to kill anything that is likely to kill us. Period. Things are going to die and die a lot. And then we will have cards like Sphinx's Revelation to reload, to win us the long game. What are we going to kill you with? I don't know. We'll figure it out when we get there. But most importantly, we're, you know, we, we're, we're going to do something. We're going to make sure you don't kill us. That's object number one. Esper Dragons, on the other hand, was a classic case of a mixed control deck. It had elements of tap out and draw go. And, you know, little little bits and pieces. Cards like Silumgar's Scorn did a really good job. I mean, it's counterspell, right? Silumgar's Scorn, Foul Tongue Invocation rewarded you for playing a lot of dragons. And similar to Solar Flare before it, Cards like Dragonlord Ojitai and Dragonlord Silumgar were really good at just being better cards than what your opponent could do as long as you cut Siege Rhino out from under them. And Siege Rhino was what everybody was doing. So between access to those two things, having, you know, outs to Collected Company, outs to these powerful combo-y mid-range decks in Silumgar Scorn and other counterspells available. Faltongue Invocation to survive the, the early game. It's not hard to see why this deck was beloved. 
And then last but not least, the last deck I want to talk about, I originally had another one after this one, but the last deck I want to talk about is Esper Hero from 2019 to 2020 standard. Now, Esper Hero is the purest form of an Esper deck that's appeared on this list so far. Most of the rest of them could have existed in a form that was largely one or the other color, like one or the other guilds, either blue-black or blue-white. You know, Solar Flare could have been a blue-black deck. It didn't really need the white mana except to cast Yosean, or it could have been a blue-white deck after uh, Resurrection got reprinted in Time Spiral. And in a lot of places, it still was. It was a blue-white deck. Uh, Esper Control from RTR Standard, if they'd had access to another good instant speed draw effect, it could have just been blue-black. Like, you could have played blue-black and you were splashing the Sphinx's Rev. That's what you were doing. Esper Dragons was largely a... Well, yeah, it was mostly a blue-black deck and it splashed Ojutai. So, like, at its core, this deck was very... Or this, this color combination is very... I don't, I'm trying to think of the right word. Modular. You can mix and match different parts of it together and it still works. But in the case of Esper Hero, it is like the best example of a deck that is very full-on, like equal representation, all three colors. You couldn't really cut any of them and expect the deck to function well. Because this was a deck that at its core, Hero Precinct 1 was trying to do its best impression of Young Pyromancer. Every time you cast a multicolored spell, you would create a 1-1 human token. That's what Hero Precinct 1 does. Well, you were playing cards like Thought Erasure, which would look at their hand, take a non-land. It's Thought Seize without the two life with a Surveil tacked onto it for an extra blue mana, which just so happens to make it multicolored, so it'll trigger Hero. It was, you know, you were interested in playing Thought Erasure. You were also interested in playing Dovin's Veto. You were also interested in playing D-Spark. So all three guilds are represented there. You were interested in playing uh, Deputy of Detention sometimes. You were interested in playing Hostage Taker early on before Ixalan rotated. You were interested in playing... Uh, oh... Both the Teferi's, Teferi uh, Time Raveler and then Teferi Hero of Dominaria. But you were also interested in cards like Ashiok Nightmare Muse sometimes. You were interested in uh, Atris, the Oracle from Theros Beyond Death, whose name I can't remember. Just top to bottom, you had access to a lot of stuff that you were interested in playing alongside your Hero Precinct 1. So, like, around Hero Precinct 1, you just kind of played a Solar Flare deck, except you really needed your mana to be good. But it was the kind of deck that, instead of trying to really beat anything, it just wanted to make sure it didn't lose to anything, like, outright. It, ha it wanted to have the ability to play its way through any matchups. It wanted to adopt a very Jund-like posture, which is rare for an Esper deck. 
normally your Esper deck is looking for a very specific matchup and you're trying to beat that thing. Solar Flare looked to beat up on the Drago or the, the Tap Out Control Mirror and the combo decks. And they were good enough against the aggro decks that they could exist. The Esper Control decks were looking to beat up on the mid-range decks that had dominated the format. Esper Hero, in a mid-range dominated format, especially once we got uh, Nyssa and Krasis together in standard. Once we got those cards together, it was an arms race to see who could do the most. And in the case of Esper Hero, it was able to exist because it lost to the least. Like, it got bowled over by nearly no one, but it also barely ever bowled over anybody. And Teferi Time Raveler was a messed up magic card. And it's not hard to understand why that card was a instrumental in vaulting that deck to the forefront of the format. To the point that even when the mana was awful later on, that deck was still pretty good. But in summation, as I, as I pointed out, Esper is a shard, as a, is a deck building toolkit piece that is never going to be the very best thing to do in the format long term. But sometimes you can fall into an Esper deck that is the absolute perfect choice for the weekend. You can just fall into a collection of blue, black, and white cards that just happens to create an avenue, an opening, something you can use. And if that's the kind of life you want to live where you've got to absolutely register the right 75 every single week, and if you don't, your deck is just actually unplayable. I mean, that's the life you want to live. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with taking the Paladin approach to Magic the Gathering. The, I'm not actually like really good at anything, but I'm going to make really sure you don't murder me. That is my goal. <laughs> that is the life you live as an Esper Mage. And that's all I've got for this week, everybody. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. We will be back next week with, an, with Grixis Week. And then we'll start diving into the cons, one after another. We're going to get through this together. <laughs> so, uh, be safe. Uh, no dad jokes this week. Nobody sent any in. Disappointed in all of you. But, be safe, be well, and be kind to one another. It's, it's, it's hard enough. We're going through enough right now. So, laugh hard. Don't lose. Be kind. We'll catch you next week.